0: We don't create courses anymore. We created courses like everybody else. And what we found was courses are great, but they also have significant drawbacks, both from when somebody's actually in the course, but also when they're thinking about buying it, because somebody looks at it and they say, okay, this thing is going to take me three months or six months, however long, before I get the result. Will I even get that result? Will I finish the thing? There's, so it raises all sorts of basically time objections. If you ever look, if you ever surveyed people who don't buy your stuff, the number one objection is always money. And the number two objection is always time. It's always something like I didn't finish the last course. Like I've gotten that a ton. You probably have too. People are like, I didn't finish your last thing.
1: Regular people are taking their knowledge and content, packaging it up in an online course, and they're making a living doing it but not everyone is successful with online courses. There's a right way, and there's a wrong way, and I'm here to help course creators actually succeed with online courses. Hi, I'm Jacques Hopkins, and this is The
0: Online Course Show.
1: Hey everyone, and welcome into The Online Course Show. I am Jacques Hopkins, and I'm so grateful that you are here. This podcast has been going on for over five years now. And I started it because it's the podcast that I wanted to listen to as a course creator. I wanted to hear stories from other course creators in all kinds of niches and hear insights and advice from them and also get best practices for starting and running an online course business. And so those are all the things that you'll get here on the online course show. I started my own online course business back in 2013 with an online piano course and has now brought in over $3 million. And I tell you that not to brag, but just to give a little credibility to the person you're listening to on a show called The Online Course Show. But I recognize that I don't have all the answers, and that's why I bring on so many awesome guests, including the amazing guests we have on today. But first, I want to tell you about a new workshop I have for you. It's a free training. It's about 35 minutes long, so not too, too long. And this training is the culmination of what I've learned from running my own online course business, plus learning from all these amazing guests on the podcast and working with so many other course creators as well. In this training, you will understand the things that seven-figure online course businesses are doing that yours is not, and it will give you clarity and focus on what you should be working on next to move the needle quickly in your business. We're going to go over the two traffic strategies that are working for course creators today. We'll go over how to create an irresistible offer for your online course business. I'm going to share with you the only two questions you need to ask about your sales funnel for it to actually convert to sales and I'm going to give you the exact formula that six and seven figure online course businesses are built on so that you can replicate their success. The training is called the Online Course Business Formula and that formula is the key thing you're going to learn and take away. And so to check out that free training, just go to ocformula.com, which stands for Online Course Formula, ocformula.com, check out that free training. So a couple of years ago, I was chatting with a friend of mine, Tim Shields, who was featured back on episode 148. He's got a wildly successful photography course. I was chatting with him in person at a conference, and he was telling me about this guy, Will Hamilton, and a product that Will had just come out with. He said that Will came out with a physical book. It was a playbook, and it had a certain number of quote-unquote plays in it. But what was interesting is each one had a QR code associated with it and you'd scan the QR code and then you'd go online and watch a roughly five minute video that would show you that particular play. And Tim was taking inspiration from that and he wanted to put together what he was going to call a photography cookbook to where he would have these individual concepts in this book that people could learn from him. And Tim quickly went to work and he released his photography cookbook and it has been really successful. But he modeled it after this concept that Will Hamilton created. Now, I was already familiar with Will Hamilton because... He has been featured in multiple like courses and books that I have read as case studies. I first came across Will's stuff when I was going through Jeff Walker's product launch formula course many years ago, which is a course about launching. And Will's tennis course and the way he went about launching and selling that stuff was featured as an example in that course. So I watched Will's sales videos and whatnot and, and pre-launch videos and got a lot of inspiration from that. And then a few years later, I was reading the book Ask by Ryan Levesque, which is an awesome book for how to survey your audience. And Will was featured in that very popular book. And I'm like, this guy is everywhere. I even reached out to Will just via email a year or two ago about coming on the podcast. And to be honest with you, I didn't get a a response at the time, but it goes to show you the power of more of a warm Introduction. So through a couple of people on the inside of my coaching program, I was warm intro to a guy named John Gallagher, who was featured very recently on this podcast in episode 186. And John has connections to Jeff Walker as well. Anyway, turns out John knows Will Hamilton really well. And that came up in that podcast episode. And so I asked John for an intro to Will. And with that warm intro, Will was more than happy to come on the podcast. And it was so awesome to meet him and to get a lot of great information. Insights on this very podcast episode. So remember warm intro, always better than a cold intro. So, Will teaches tennis online. His brand is fuzzyyellowballs.com. Very interesting name. And he started back in 2007, has been wildly successful. In this conversation, he talks about how taking up stand up comedy during the pandemic has helped his online business. He talks about how to do influencer marketing, which is something we don't talk a lot about on this podcast, but he talks about how effective influencer marketing is for him and his business and why the ROI is so much higher for him than paid ads. He talks about why he actually doesn't create true courses anymore and what he creates instead. And just to look ahead to that, he goes over this concept of linear versus non-linear learning. His playbooks, he's got the singles playbook and the doubles playbook, are what would be classified as non-linear learning, meaning you can go to an individual play and execute it and get a particular result and not have to know about all the other plays. Whereas with a traditional online course, it's more step-by-step A to Z. You need to start at the beginning and go to the end to get the result. That's more of linear learning. So we had a good discussion about that. And it's just something good to, to think about. It. This nonlinear learning isn't for everybody, but it could be a way to differentiate yourself from competition. And differentiation is extremely important. And we talked about how he got featured in all of these high-profile products. So with that, let's get into the full conversation between myself and Will Hamilton. Will, you've obviously you've been doing this online business stuff for quite a while. So here in 2022, when we're recording, what does a typical day or work week look like for you?
0: It varies a lot, to be honest. In the tennis industry, when I go to tournaments, you're sort of on from 8 a.m. to whenever the matches end, which is sometimes pretty late. But I'd say when I'm in DC like I am now, I'll probably wake up between eight and nine. One of my goals for becoming an entrepreneur was I could wake up without an alarm clock. That was just one of those like specific things that I wanted to be able to do. So then I'll go and I'll there's a coffee shop around the corner. And uh, it's funny, if you'd asked me this question in 2019, my answer would be very different. But after the pandemic, or after, during, <laughs> I don't know where we are, but post-COVID, when we had stay-at-home order here in D.C., which lasted a really long time, we couldn't leave our place until, stay-at-home was until about June, middle of June 2020, it was a long time. So I took up a stand-up comedy as my pandemic activity. Uh, It's always something I wanted to do. There's shades when we talk about internet marketing, the writing process is actually quite similar. With copywriting, you're trying to get somebody to buy something and just with comedy writing, trying to get somebody to laugh. So a lot of the techniques are actually quite similar, just your punchline is a little bit different. But in any event, I go to a coffee shop and I write jokes for a couple hours, some better, some worse, but I've been performing around DC. So that's been fun. And then once I run out of inspiration, I'll, I'll start working on the 10 stuff and I'll probably get done four or five o'clock. And then actually, I'll, I'll go either play or try and get some other workout in. And then the night is whatever I got going on, whether it's hanging out with friends or, you know, doing some reading, I guess you could say. I don't really read a ton of books because I'm dyslexic. So I'll read, but it's more like five, 10, 15 minute. Bursts like articles, and then all reset. That was a, that was a very long answer to that question, and very scatterbrained.
1: Has the has the stand up comedy thing like always been a goal of yours? Or is it something more recent?
0: Yeah, I've always been a little subversive, so I've always wanted to do it. It's one of those things where you probably see this in marketing too. Is you go to a live event, right? And a lot of live events are sales oriented. And the reason they want to get you in the room is they're changing your environment. And so they're putting you in a situation where you're way more likely to buy something versus sitting on Zoom and consuming the content that way, even though that's quite effective as well. But the stay-at-home order, literally, it's always something I wanted to do, never got around to doing it. But then literally, I couldn't leave my apartment. Environment's totally different where all of your social activities and life, frankly, has just been totally thrown out of whack. So I was just like, all right, this is the right time for me to try this when I can't do anything else. So I went on YouTube and started Googling around how do you, or YouTubing, how do I write jokes? And there was this one coach that I watched some of his videos. It made sense. And so I uh, went and found his website and he had some stuff. He, he was doing like lot, actual like Zoom training. So mm-hmm. I I joined one of those and that was the start of it.
1: That rings a bell to something I hadn't thought of in a long time, because this podcast has been going over for five years now, and we've had just all kind of people and all kind of niches on. And I remember in the very early days, we had a comedy guy on that, that had a course about either starting or getting better at stand-up comedy. Is his name
0: Jerry Corley, out of curiosity? I don't think so. Gotcha. Okay. Because that's who no. I take. And now he used to write for Leno. He was the guy I found, but I now take weekly lessons for him. So he's my coach. So we'll hop on Zoom every week and he'll go over my latest material and we'll workshop it.
1: Does he have an online course too?
0: He does. Yeah. If you go to it, his website is Standupcomedyclinic.com. Jerry Corley. He's got like the in marketing terms, like his front end offer is this thing called Breaking Comedy's DNA. And he basically breaks comedy into 13 comedy structures. Like, why are why do we actually laugh at stuff? Why is stuff funny? And so, he, it, I mean, it really is copywriting. So if you're interested in that stuff, you should, you should check it out. Like an analogy joke, for example, is thing one is like thing two. So, you know, a tennis ball is like a Volvo. The punchline has to be true of both. So actually, the first exercise he gives you is my girlfriend is like an egg. And then you have to find the punchline is true of both. So very obvious stuff would be like cracks easily. There are a diamond does. It's anything you can think of. It's not particularly clever. Or my girlfriend's like a smartphone. That's another one. But when you know that structure, then it gives you a process for writing. In that case, an analogy joke. And then there's a there's thirteen of them. So there's like double entendre. That's like the word fly it could mean a number of different things. It could be the insect. It could be the airplane be fly on your pants. It could be fly on the wall. Here's a joke. So-and-so has got a really big heart and you think that they're saying like they're a really generous, nice person. So if so-and-so has got a really big heart, they really need to go to the doctor. Not a great joke, but you can see structurally how that operates. Right.
1: I do, yeah. Comedy is not my forte. I try, and my wife doesn't laugh at most of my jokes. (laughs) Most most people don't, so maybe I need to take this guy's online course.
0: There's a rule. There's a rule is never run your material by your uh, your family because they're just horrible critics. They're the wrong people to run jokes by. Now I will run jokes by my parents just because I'm trying to piss them off (laughs) with my material. But I'm not actually often looking for feedback. The dream is when my mom laughs and my dad gets mad that's like the goal then i know it's a good joke if mom is laughing and dad is just frustrated like how did i raise you to this that's something like that's i'm gonna use that one on stage
1: so when we're locked down you did something that i would say a lot of people probably did which is start to explore things that they wanted to do but this was just a really good excuse to finally do it because you're locked down can't do a lot of other things and for you that was comedy did you find a lot of people were finding you and your tennis training at that point? I was curious about that because my piano stuff did really well, but that's an indoor activity. Now, I guess there is indoor tennis, but how did COVID go with the tennis business? The entire
0: industry is up 40% post-COVID, and the reason is it's a socially distant sport. So I think similar trends with you, oh, I don't have to leave my place to do piano. Tennis is, I need to get exercise. I'm 78 feet away from somebody when I play this game. That's better than going to a gym. So the whole industry across the board is up 40%. It's just a strange consequence of COVID.
1: Where does your traffic come from? So I guess your traffic was probably at least 40% up and therefore sales. But at this point, where's traffic coming from for
0: you? Traffic used to... So we got in... So we've been doing this since 2007, which is crazy. I wasn't the first person to put a tennis video on YouTube, but I was essentially the first... Tennis YouTuber, we hit it at the right time. YouTube was new, so we got all our initial traffic from YouTube, basically because we were only game to town. And then I was like, "This is way too much work to be able to to trying to do YouTube and grow a business because I'm technically the same thing." But the creating quality YouTube content is a lot of work. I've got a lot of friends that's their full time job, and it is legitimately a full time job. So we got away from that probably about a decade ago. And it's a mixture of ads like your traditional Facebook, Google affiliates. And now the the stuff we're getting into that's worked incredibly well is influencer marketing. Mm. So somebody else is a YouTuber or on TikTok or... You know, Twitter, Instagram, wherever. I honestly, don't, I'm not. If you looked at, I, I am not on social media. I just think it's a huge time sink and bad for your mental health, among other things. So I don't really do it. But if other people are creating content, I'll go say, "Hey, can I pay you to put my products in your content?" And that works great, like really well, way better than running normal ads on Google or YouTube. Outside of affiliates, I would say that's affiliates are great, but there's a scalability issue once you get all the affiliates in the market. And I'm not counting influencers. I'm talking about other people with like big mailing lists. That's with email lists. You can tap that out to a degree, but the influencer marketing stuff is great for new buyers and doesn't really have a, as much of a scale issue to it.
1: Shortly before we started talking, I was just browsing around your website and I clicked on the little Instagram logo and noticed you had two posts and about 300 followers. So it doesn't surprise me oh, you're not a, not big on social media. Yeah,
0: we're up, Man, we're up to 300. <laughs> that's awesome. I'm proud of myself. Uh, I haven't checked that in about 10 years. So last time I checked, it was like me and my parents were following. I bet they're on Instagram. But yeah, it's uh, it's just not something I want to do. Yeah.
1: So I've got experience with all the traffic sources that you mentioned, except for the influencer marketing. That's always fascinating me, but I don't really know where to get started. And I think that's not a traffic stream that comes up a ton on this podcast. So you make it sound easy. Is it
0: easy? Send an email to somebody and be like, "Hey, man, I want to give you money to feature my stuff in your videos." And that that's like legitimately the like my I just emailed people and I had the benefit of people knew who I was, but I don't know if that is necessarily an impediment just because if somebody's cranking out YouTube videos and they're making, I just look at the math of it. I'm making numbers up, but if your CPM is ten bucks which is... So for those who aren't familiar, for every thousand, the the metric CPM basically means how much do I get paid in ad revenue for every thousand views of my video? Probably five is more realistic, four to five. So if you're getting $5 for every thousand views, if you can go to the influencer and just say, hey, man, I'll give you, just by way of example, $5 for every thousand views, you're now doubling their income. And if they don't already have sponsorships, they're going to at least pay attention to that email. If your product ends up being garbage, they're not going to promote, but that's, if you have a good product, there's no reason they wouldn't respond. So then you just run a preliminary test You say, I'll sponsor five videos. I would do it as a flat fee and not as an affiliate commission, just for a, a number of reasons that we could fill a whole different podcast with, but just... Do an initial initial test, see what the results are, and then iterate it from there. But if you're not doing that, that really is super low hanging fruit. And the advantage when you're running like Google Ads or you're running Facebook Ads, you are competing against Pfizer, BMW, Coca Cola, and every other advertiser in the world that have billion dollar ad budgets. But Coca Cola is not going to go to Jock would say your industry. They're not going to go to a piano influencer and say, hey put Coca-Cola in your video. They're just not going to do that. So you just need to go to all the piano influencers and say, hey, put my product in your video. And you only need to be able to outspend the other people in the piano space, which is obviously a lot easier than being able to outspend Coca-Cola. If we were competitors and I was willing to offer somebody three bucks to sponsor their video and you offered five, they're obviously going to go with you. And so if you can get that to back out, and if you have a good product, you should be able to, then that's gonna, that'll be a good traffic source. If you're not, if you're not doing it, put it that way. But,
1: But does it matter if they can truly stand behind your product or not? I feel like they would almost have to have used your product and gotten benefits from it. For example, I've got sponsors of this podcast, I also promote things as an affiliate and I make it very clear to my audience, everything that I promote, whether it's a sponsorship or an affiliate or whatever, I use and love. Is that important?
0: Oh, it's certainly important. That's the There's this term that's a little buzzwordy, but it's, it's the social proof you are giving to the product that really is why it's so effective. I think the technical term is like parasocial relationship, which I'm loathe to use buzzwords, but that's the actual thing if people want to Google it is like, people feel like they know you and have a relationship with you, even though you've never met them before. And that's basically a psychological principle when people are watching you a YouTube video or listening to a podcast or whatever. And so they're more inclined to take your recommendation. That's why the influencer marketing stuff works. That's why Kylie Jenner or Kim Kardashian are able to move product. I have one influencer who bought my product just because he bought it before we ever started doing a thing. He was like, oh, I bought this. I think it's great. I'll promote it. I have another one where I just sent him. We have a physical book that they're promoting. He, I, to my knowledge, didn't use it. I was just like, hey, do you want to promote this? And he's like, yeah, let me take a look at the product, make sure I like it, think it's good. I think as long as the influencer thinks your product is good, I think that is perfectly sufficient. And they say, if you like it, pick up a copy. If not, no worries. I think you can keep it pretty casual in terms of, the influencer themselves pitching it. Is it
1: like tennis coaches that you're approaching?
0: Yeah, it's in instructional channels. We have, we have some that are doing like more. You can go look this up. If you type in cult tennis, like an actual cult, cult tennis basically does documentaries related to tennis. Like one of their popular ones recently was How Boris Becker Blew a $170 Million Fortune it's just stuff like that. So it's kind of stories around, basically stories that aren't necessarily on court about a match itself. So that's just a documentary. And at the end of it, it's like, hey, go check out this thing. You might like it. So we do have influencers that are not specifically instructional. It's just tennis content. And again, you just run a test, you see how it goes. And then it's pretty low commitment. You don't have to make a huge financial investment to see if it works.
1: So you mentioned the physical book. What is your current like product slate, product library that you offer?
0: Yeah, we have. I don't know if people are going to be able to see this. But we have a thing called the Doubles Playbook. It's a physical book that we send to people. And then every page has a QR code on it. So the diagram you're looking at, you scan the QR code with your phone, and it'll take you to a video explaining what you're looking at. So we thought that was like an interesting concept to try. And it's been the Doubles Playbook and the Singles Playbook are two best-selling products.
1: I'm on your site right now, and I don't really see anything else I can purchase through the website. And maybe I'm just missing something. But no, do you you're offer not else? building the
0: website because we're also driving people now to our app. Is uh, we built an app and are housing all of our content in there. Eventually, will there'll be a full web portal, just like logging into Netflix, where you can you can access it online. You can access it on your phone, your tablet via the app. Well, we're moving a lot of stuff uh, onto apps. One of the reasons is we have found that once you remove credit card friction, people are way more likely to buy. So if they're in your app and they don't have to enter in a credit card, you get more sales that way. But you also just what you're able to do with a product and instruction and content in an app is so much more robust than a pure video. That's another reason we're putting it in there. So the content is way more dynamic and interactive. It's hard for me to talk about if this is audio versus a video. I'll show this to you. And people can go download the Fuzzy Yellow Balls app. If they The,
1: the app is live. This is not just conceptual oh, at this it's point. Live. No, so
0: this is it right there. So you see how there's this app and then there's buttons all over the place. So this guy's in something called the trophy pose, which is just a position when you're serving. If I click any one of those buttons, it's going to take me to, or I'll take you to a video showing you how to get power out of that part of your body. So we've broken the content down into like your arm, your foot, your back hip, stuff like that. So we've just split it into pieces so it's more consumable, basically. But you can't create something like that, obviously, on on YouTube or in a typical content hosting platform. And so it just allows people to consume it more a la carte. And then if you go back to this, you can see that's the serve. If I swipe over, it goes to the forehand, the backhand.
1: Yeah, this will be primarily just audio. I'm getting a good picture here from you. So is the app, obviously people can pay for the books and then is the app paid or it's free and then there's kind of upsells in the app?
0: Yeah, it's freemium. Basically the serve I showed you is free. All those videos are free, but the rest of the stuff you hit paywall.
1: How are you getting people to download the app for free? Are you relying on just like app search engine SEO? Influencers. So
0: it's, and we're rolling it out slowly. We're about to actually turn on YouTube ads to see how that goes. So in fairness, I'm working out the app stuff, but that's like the latest thing that we're working on, but we've got our preliminary data looks good. So we'll see how it goes once we really try and scale it.
1: As far as like the website goes and any like funnels and so on, if I go and I purchase the one of your books for, I think $67, is that kind of the start of a funnel? There are upsells and things from there?
0: Yeah. So the content structure, if people are trying to figure out like we're talking, we've been talking about a couple of different things. The top level, and we, Jacques, we talked about this over email, like we don't create courses anymore. We created courses like everybody else. And what we found was courses are great, but they also have significant drawbacks, both from when somebody's actually in the course, but also when they're thinking about buying it. Because the course is... Somebody looks at it and they say, "Okay, this thing is going to take me three months or six months, however long before I get the result. Will I even get that result? Will I finish the thing?" There's, so it raises all sorts of basically time objections. If you ever look, if you ever survey people who don't buy your stuff, the number one objection is always money, and the number two objection is always time. It's always something like, "I didn't finish your last course." I've gotten that a ton. You probably have too. People are like, "I didn't finish your last thing." I'm going on vacation. Sometimes they'll give you a money objection and it, they're really talking about time. They're like, oh, I'm, I don't know. I don't want to invest in this, because I don't know if I'm going to use it. That's essentially a time objection, a couched in a money objection. What we did was we have created, a, we call it a playbook. we created that. It, it just happens It's the doubles playbook, the singles playbook. And it's obviously derived from sports where they have actual playbooks. Do you play a sport, John?
1: I have historically. Um, golf would probably be at the top of my list.
0: Okay, so that's not a good example.
1: <laughs> we'll go I've with dabbled basketball. in tennis. We can stick with yeah. that, or or baseball would be
0: next. Okay, baseball. That's um, not good
1: for playbook either. Let's go with it's basketball. Okay.
0: It's okay. We're gonna go. We're gonna we'll go with basketball. Yeah. obviously football is the most famous example, but actually let's stick with football. Football is better. So, I love watching football. football. Yeah, well of course you you live in Louisiana, so you have to. Nick Saban just got his contract extended through twenty thirty or something like yeah. that. Your, yeah, your your big rivals. That
1: He used to coach for us down here at LSU. Yeah, sure. yeah. What is it, um, LSU, the
0: Miami, the Dolphins, and then back to college ranks, right?
1: Yes, so yeah. he's like our arch nemesis, even though he used to coach here, but he did just release a new book about leadership that I'm looking forward to reading.
0: Yeah, that would be interesting. He, he obviously got it down. But I'll, I look forward to reading the Cliff Notes since I don't really <laughs> read books. The audio book. So like right now, you've got a cookbook on your shelf that you probably love and recommend to everybody. And you've only used five recipes out of the hundred in there. And so we were like, how do we structure our content like that where people can go in and only get what they need and not have to consume everything else? Because when you're going through a course and you're like, I already know this, it's such an impediment to continuing with the course. You're like, am I going to learn anything? Do I want to continue investing time in this? With a playbook, you get the difference between a cookbook and a playbook is a playbook has a very specific outcome in mind. And in this case, it's scoring touchdowns, right? But every single play in the playbook isn't run this play touchdown. It's if you run this play, you're going to move the ball a little bit down the field. And then we have now another situation where here is the correct play for that situation. Now you're going to move the ball a little bit further down the field. And if you do that enough, eventually you're going to end up in the end zone. And so what we do now is we sit down and we basically make a big list of when we're creating content, what are all the situations that we know our people are going to run into? Just like a football coach would make a list of all the situations they're going to face in a game. And then they're going to be like, this is the correct play for that situation. So that's how we structure our content. Now, like the doubles playbook is 48 plays that show you how to set up easy put away volleys and overheads, which are just in tennis, basically volleys that are high right on the net. And they're easy You win a point when you get them. And so that's what every single play does. It's just, it shows you how to set up an easy put away volley and overhead in different situations. And people know that if they do that enough, then they're going to win doubles matches. But they can go in there and they can watch two or three plays and then ignore the rest of the content because they got what they need. So that's how we structure our content. Now it is not linear. It's essentially non-linear and very short, like our videos are five minutes long They deliver a specific result in that situation. It's basically one of the key components of it is speed to results. Like how can we quickly deliver a result? And what we do, what that's allowed us to do with our marketing, if you watch the, and I know, Jacques, you watched the sales video for the doubles playbook, we show one play. So we're like, this thing's got 48 plays in here. Let me show you one of them. Now, if you like it, there's 47 more in here. You can scroll down the page and buy it. But what that practically does is if you've ever walked into the supermarket and somebody's like, hey, do you want a piece of cheese on a stick? You eat the piece of cheese and then you now know how the entire wheel tastes. So by sharing just one piece of content, we can now give scope to the entire playbook and people know what they're getting in a way that you cannot do with a course. If you share like module one of the course, people still don't know what's going to be in module two, three, four, five, and six. So this basically, the way we set it up from a sales perspective is like the cheese on a stick. I now know what the wheel tastes like. If you come to our website, there's no email capture. There's no lead magnet. It's direct to buy. And we tested the two. We tested capture email, then pitch versus just sit, hey, go buy the thing. And hey, go buy the thing work like significantly beat The email capture,
1: yes, for a sixty-seven dollar product. But if it were six hundred and seventy dollars, probably not the
0: case. No, then you get an email address. Yeah, then you get an email address. My my point or my question there would be why wouldn't you create a sixty-seven dollar product and then the upsell and the back end would be go buy my six hundred dollar thing? Because if you can sell something outright on the front end, then uh, you know ad costs right now. You go negative to hope you go negative and then sell your six hundred dollar thing. But you could just run ads, whether it's Google Ads, Facebook, or influencers, and actually make a profit on the front end. And then, obviously, the higher ticket thing is profit on the back end.
1: You've already admitted a couple of times you're not a big book reader. One of the big books in our space right now is $100 Million Offers by Alex Hermosi. So, I don't know if you've heard of it, but one of the things he talks about is how important the time delay is. And one of that's one of the factors in his value equation is we want to reduce time delay to the result as much as possible. And another thing related to that he mentions is one mistake people do when they like add bonuses to their offer is they'll just add in like more training and more courses and more videos. When in reality, that just sounds like more work and more time for somebody. And what we want to do is add bonuses that can actually decrease time delay. So we add worksheets or playbooks or whatever. So that, I mean, I would definitely resonate with that. But to me, the problem I see is if you're trying to teach beginners at something, right? So I teach beginners piano. I don't teach established people to be better at piano or these individual tricks on the piano. I'm teaching people all the way at the beginning. To go through a process and be able to play songs on the piano. So, I don't know how I would teach something like that or really beginners in any space through what you're talking about in this nonlinear fashion. I feel like beginners need a linear progression to get started.
0: I don't know where you would, you've got your beginner to wherever. I would probably, I don't know what the outcome is that you're delivering, but isn't it something like in 29 days or something like that? Or what's the.
1: Yeah. So, I can take you from like never having touched the piano to being able to play. A competent version of pop songs on the piano, in a, it, like any pop song, not specific ones, any one yeah. in as little as 21 days.
0: Yeah. So one technique you can use there is you can go through, like when somebody takes your course, you would make a list of all the mistakes people make as they try and go through your content. So I'm making a number up, but let's say there's 30 mistakes, like really common mistakes. People keep running into the same mistakes over and over again. You would then create those mistakes are going to happen in certain situations, right? Along that journey, people are going from absolute beginner to quasi competent. There are going to be situations where people get to that situation and they make a mistake, and so that would be where you would then solve that thing. And you can do that like in a way where people don't need the information before, or they don't need the, or in this case, they don't need the stuff before. They just if they are facing that mistake right now then they, you have now provided the fix. And if they find that interesting, then they're going to buy your whole thing. Like I don't play, just to give you a parallel example, like I, my brother just was at a banjo camp, Bela Fleck in, a, if, out in Brevard, North Carolina. And I was down there. We have a house, family has a house in the mountains outside Asheville, but my brother was there hanging out and he was talking about how you play the banjo. And I don't know anything about the banjo. I've never played in my life. But he was talking, and I guess this applies to guitar too, he's like, when you are strumming a guitar or a banjo, there are going to be sometimes you strum, but you don't actually hit the, the what are the strings on mm-hmm. the, are they call straight chord, not strings, right? You don't actually hit the strings because you're not trying to play something, but you want to keep strumming in that motion because you hold your rhythm. Now that tip by itself, I thought was super interesting. And if I was trying to learn the guitar, that is something I would want to know. And that tip, that piece of advice is completely unrelated and does not depend on any linear process. It's just something that is interesting, like a mistake. You reframed it into a mistake. A mistake would be people stop strumming when they're not hitting the strings, right? They only strum the guitar when it's they're actually touching the strings as opposed to strumming just to maintain rhythm. And sometimes you actually hit the strings and sometimes you don't. So I people, when I talk about this, they run into the exact same, essentially, objection you are running into right now is I need a linear process to teach people. And I would just challenge you to say that is not true. Because even if someone is like a beginner, are they an absolute beginner or they have been screwing around a little bit on their own? Do you want to give them like a couple just very basic things that allow them to build momentum? I would challenge that assumption that if it's an absolute beginner, it has to be a linear approach versus just like little exercises. Here's an exercise you can do, learn to change chords. You could do that in piano, right? Here's an exercise for scales. There's a ton of stuff that you have a bunch of exercises, like practice exercises. There's a perfect example is you could make a list of the top 25 practice exercises for beginners. You don't have to do them in order. You can do them in any order you want, right? But it's starting to get your fingers moving. It's starting to get you comfortable on the keyboard, starting to get you faster playing the keys, changing keys, whatever. My friend, Callie King, who is right here, actually, she made a playbook. It's called Stay in the Saddle, but it's just 67 exercises For staying in the saddle. So, like a horse won't throw you off balance and they're unconnected. There's not a linear progression you have to go through. So, maybe that's a good way to think about it is if you just made a list of exercises in any industry, you just make them for beginners. And if they're valuable and people are like, when you share one, like that free piece of cheese on a stick, it's got to be awesome. People have to be like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. Then they're going to want to buy everything else because they've never seen anything like this and they can do it right then and there and they can get, they're like, oh my gosh, this deliverer, Jacques actually delivered the result that he was talking about in five minutes. I can do this now. Of course, I'm now going to buy the whole book or the whole playbook, whether it's digital, physical, whatever, because this thing, this one tip was great. I can't wait to see what the other 30 are.
1: I'm not sold yet.
0: That's fine. I wouldn't expect you to be. I'm a good salesman. I'm not that good.
1: <laughs> well, I'm, I'm I'm I may just not be quite understanding you. So, I, I, the piano example is what I can relate to the most. If you want to switch examples, feel free, because I, I know it doesn't sound like that's something that you super resonate with. But if let's say that I had a product like that, ultimately, I'm trying to teach people who like it's, it's my audience skew's older. They maybe took piano lessons when they were a kid. It fizzled out. They always regretted not having actually learned or they've never really tried or played and now they're older and it's a bucket list item. They don't have a lot of time. They don't want to spend a lot of time on it. Hence, piano in 21 days. That's my typical audience. And so if I come to them with a nonlinear product that helps them with how to make their chord changes smooth and how to this to sound good and how to integrate left-hand properly, like these individual things that they can take away, I still don't understand how I'm going to take that type of person from where they are to being able to play songs on the piano, which is the outcome I'm looking for?
0: It's a different product is the answer. Okay. Is If you're trying to take people to playing songs on a piano, then Playbook might not be the correct result. But if you're trying to really narrow down a result that people want... So, Doubles Playbook is a great example. There are a bazillion things that go into being a good doubles player. You have to have chemistry with your partner. you got to have a good serve. you got to have a backhand. You have to have all this technical stuff. You have to know how to hit the ball. And I don't focus on any of that. I say how to set up easy put-away volleys and overheads. It's an incredibly narrow result that everybody wants to know how to do because they know in the back of their head, if I can do this, then I'm going to start winning more doubles matches. But my promise in the product is not win more doubles matches. It's super broad to the point where it's almost meaningless and it's not unique. But if I said you're going to win more doubles matches, anybody else in tennis could say that. And then why would people choose me versus somebody else? So the trick for this is you got to start by finding a much more narrow result that you were delivering. Obviously, people need to want it. The example I always give is Domino's Pizza. Back in the 80s, so pizza deliver- delivery pizza is super commoditized. Right? What, what makes you better than... Why is Domino's better than Pizza Hut or Papa John's or whoever? And in the 80s, they came out with a slogan, fresh hot pizza delivered to your door in 30 minutes or it's free. Now, that was such a unique result at the time that they went from nobody knew who they were to a billion-dollar company, multiple billion-dollar company. Typically, in internet marketing, you make bigger and bolder promises, which is fine, but... The believability of it becomes down and they start to become a little bit more squishy. If I say buy my internet marketing product and you're gonna make millions of dollars and have the home of your dreams, that's you can't really, it's harder to picture in a way. Maybe the home of your dreams you could picture, but millions of dollars, that that visual becomes much more difficult for people to see. So whenever I think of a result, now this actually comes out of comedy because The goal when you're writing a setup to a joke, so you got the setup and the punchline. The setup is the information, then the punchline typically is some kind of twist that is funny. And so the setup, the good setups create pictures in your mind. You're filling in the gaps, you're making assumptions, you see what the comic wants you to see, and then they change that picture on you at the very end. I took that to heart when it comes to marketing and specifically a result I'm delivering. I want people to be able to see the result that I'm delivering. So an easy put away volley or overhead, people can see it because it is a snapshot in time. It's not, you're going to be better at the net. What does that mean? That's way too vague. It is an easy put away volley or overhead. They can see it. I have another product, a very similar result actually. It's called the little black book of tells and like a poker tell. And it basically, the promise is how to predict where the tennis ball is going to cross the net so you know when to poach, cover the alley, or cover the lob. But the promise, how to predict where the ball is going to cross the net, that is, again, a snapshot in time. That's literally the tennis ball sitting over the net. It is super specific. And when people can see it, then if they want the thing, great, but they can conceptualize what you're trying to sell to them. That's somewhat of a tangent off of what we were talking about before, but that's how I go thinking of results. Is it super narrow? Is it visual? And then once I establish that, then I would, at least from a playbook standpoint, try and figure out how to deliver that. The assumption is people like want super big results, and they certainly do, but they also want very tight results. Or you have a question about something, probably your first move is to go Google it and not go to a course and go through the 35 modules to figure out, to see if it has the answer. You want a specific, you have a specific question right then and there, you go to Google because you know that Google is going to give you something targeted most likely. So if you are able to identify all those situations, know people are searching for and create a product around it, then they are obviously all contained in your product. The person goes specifically to that situation to get the result.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. It ultimately depends on the outcome, the result they're looking for. And you started that response by saying that's a different product. So, you're not saying that like never create a linear product, are you?
0: No, of course not. You can create as many linear products as you want. It's just everybody does it. Is my only, I guess you could say, beef with it. it is people are like it's the only way people teach to consume to organize content. And i I've created a bazillion courses. And just from my experience, they're harder to create because you have to actually figure out step one's this, step two's this, step three's this, versus when you just identify 25, 30 situations and find the fixes for them. If they're delivering a result people want, you can do it. I create these things now in a matter of days because I'll typically work with experts. And we have a shoot coming up with an analytics expert. He basically knows all the numbers behind tennis. So he's like, this is a statistically correct strategy. And this one is a loser. This one's gonna lose you points. This one's gonna win you points. We can identify all those situations where here's all the stuff people do wrong, here's the statistically, mathematically, analytically correct play. So he's got all that content. And so we're gonna shoot, we'll have the product done in two days. And then it's just up to us editing it, which is relatively straightforward and then uh, getting it out there.
1: So what you're doing is you're you're presenting an alternate model to what is the mainstream approach really right. to educating somebody on a topic. And yeah. earlier when you said we don't do courses anymore, it's not because courses can't work, don't work. It's just that you found this other model and it's worked so well that you're just like double tripling down on it. And that's the model you want to keep rolling out. Is that a yeah. fair assessment? Yeah, it's a fair
0: assessment. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: So for me, if you were advising me, like you would say, okay, don't necessarily get rid of the linear course, but maybe let's add some sort of nonlinear product as well.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I think particularly because your stuff's higher ticket, I would create a lower ticket sub $100 as your front end. And then you can turn again, like how do you get people to your website? Typically, people tend to think of ad costs as I'm going to lose money on this and I hope I make it up on the back end. Or they can't even afford ads. They're like, I have to publish content. I have to churn out content on YouTube or my blog because it's got to be free because I can't afford to pay for it. I was mentioning the influencer stuff earlier. This model works so well that we... Can go out to you. You have the resources now to spend money on ads. And not only do you break even in a lot of cases, you're making way more back on your ad spend than um, you're, you're making your ROI is really high. That was not articulate at all, but you're making a lot back on the. Yeah.
1: Well, I feel better about it now. At first, I was like, wait, you're saying never create a linear product. There's never a reason for that. But I think I get you a little better now.
0: Doc, I was saying your business is terrible and you've made horrible mistakes. That's the whole point. You've got me questioning my entire
1: life, Will. Yes,
0: exactly. I'm saying (laughs) your whole business isn't a sham. No, it's yeah. I should have made that clear up front. It's just an alternate model that works as a great compliment. To the higher ticket stuff in particular is you can now make a lot of money on the front end with a lower ticket thing without cannibalizing what you're already doing. so it's more of a full force multiplier
1: yeah, and I, I certainly don't I don't want to pigeonhole like every online course needs to be laid out and done exactly this way. Ah uh, John Gallagher, we both know now he on the podcast a few weeks ago called his online or uh, he called his board game an online course. That's another yeah. extremely non-traditional education tool, if you will, but that's the way he put it.
0: Hmm. Yeah. It might just be in like internet marketing lingo. I do think, yeah, cor- even when I hear the word course, a lot of the time I'd be like, man, how much time is this going to take? You know what I mean? It's almost like it raises an instant objection. It can also be the opposite though, because for the folks who like really do want to go deeper, then yeah, you want something that's substantive, that if you know someone who spent time thinking about the process that you need to go through to get this result. I think for the bigger promises, the course would be the way to go. If it's this huge transformation you're going to deliver, then yeah, you need to have something robust this three months, six months, whatever, or in your case, 21 days, which is a great title for a program, by the way.
1: Uh, Thanks, appreciate that. Yeah, the- Not as good as fuzzy yellow balls though.
0: That you know, I wish I could take credit for that. It was actually my friend who thought of it. He said we couldn't come up with a good name. Everything was lame. It was like, learn tennis or online tennis lesson. Just very generic. All of them were obviously registered even back in 2007. So my buddy Alex suggested, what about fuzzy green balls? I was like, well, a tennis ball is yellow. So it'd be fuzzy yellow balls. That people might misinterpret that name. Let me put it that way. So I ran it, but it's catchy. So I ran it by my parents and I'm 25 at the time. And they were like, you absolutely cannot name yourself that. And then as soon as they said, I couldn't do something, I obviously did it. So that's how we came up with it. Fascinating. It's yeah. It's uh, thanks mom and dad.
1: For uh, me, I was like, I was like, I know I'm going to teach people quickly. Let me just pick a number. I was at first, I was like piano in 30 days. I was like, now nah, let's do piano in 21 days. Available. Boom. Keep moving forward.
0: Yeah, no, it's great. It's at the time a, a good one. So, the if you go back to the Domino's thing, fresh hot pizza delivery door in 30 minutes or it's free. So, this is something I got from comedy writing. So, I have a joke structure called a reverse, and it's not, I'm not making any of this up. It's a, it's an actual technical term for a joke. And it basically means I lead you down one path and then I switch the outcome at the end. I'll tell one, I've one in mind. How, what's the level of my jokes are like, somewhat aggressive. It's not sexual in nature or anything like that. But can I tell, are you just going to cut it if I tell it and you don't like it? Who do we have?
1: Let's do it. I'm ready.
0: Here, I'm going to think of another one that's not, whatever, we'll tell it. And then if you don't like it, we'll do this segment again with a different (laughs) joke. So the joke goes like this. I just got a call from the principal telling me that my kid is being bullied in school. And guys, take it from me. That is the single worst way to find out you're a father. So, you don't need to give me any pity laugh. That joke works well on stage, but I've set up an assumption and then I break it. Before we go any further, are you going to allow that on the podcast or Yeah, absolutely. What's- I think
1: it's I on? think it's telling your point perfectly. Okay. I get it. It's funny.
0: So, I'm I'm setting up an expectation and I'm breaking it. And so the way you look at so the setup is I just had a call from the principal telling me that my kid is being bullied in school. So that setup creates all sorts of assumptions. And you can look at a setup through the lens of the five W's, who, what, when, where, and why. Then you look at what is explicitly stated and then what is assumed. And in this case, the who, my son, you assume that I know that I have a son. I think I probably explained that But in any event, the point is if you look at what Domino's has done with their result is fresh hot pizza, that is a what delivered to your door. That is a where, like, where is it going in 30 minutes? That is a when, or it's free, which is back to back to a what. So like what you did is learn piano in 21 days. So you did the what plus a when, but you can construct results from when you look at constructing result, look at it through the lens of the five Ws. Can you add a when? Can you add a where? Can you add a why? To sharpen or heighten the result. So that's a really good technique for assembling a result that somebody wants. Versus saying like something like, "Oh, I'm gonna, you're gonna make a million dollars." That's super lazy and it's not unique. But then if you start layering in these other things, you could sharpen that into. This is also super cliche, but make a million dollars and. 14 days. That's absurd. No one would believe that. But you can start to hobble together something that is different from what everybody else is offering.
1: Do you teach like the business side or are you just purely on the tennis side?
0: Just on the tennis.
1: You seem pretty passionate about, about this and even going so far as to innovate on the business side of things. Have you ever thought about...
0: I've thought about it. Yeah, yeah. We'll see what the next year has in store. But I've certainly thought, I've, as I'm in like Jeff Walker's mastermind, uh, and I've been in other masterminds in the past. So you, you get together in these things and share ideas. And it's interesting to do, but it also forces you to try and think about them clearly and concisely so that you can explain them to people in a way that makes sense. Because I've certainly g- gone through Iterations of trying to explain something where I'm like, no one gets it, and you're like, all right, this is terrible. I gotta throw that out and do it again.
1: I yeah, I first came across your stuff going through Jeff Walker's course many years ago. I think it was 2016, and watched your videos so many times that there there was there's things you said. I think I took and still use to this day. One one comes to mind. I'm sure there's more than that, but I know you were talking about your guarantee, and you said like, if I can't teach you tennis then I don't want your money, plain and simple, something like that. I was like, oh, that's brilliant. I I think I still say that to this day. If I can't teach you piano, I don't want your money. But then a few years later, I was reading Ask by Ryan Levesque. Your name's in that book.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was one of Ryan's first clients before he became Ryan Levesque, like when nobody knew who he was. I was a private client of his since 2000. It was like 2013 to 15 or something like that, 15 or 16. And then he became Ryan Levesque. Yeah. So we were doing the quiz funnel stuff for a long time. He's a really sharp guy, obviously.
1: So, how do you, how are you a case study in all these high profile books and products? And what's your motivation behind wanting to do that if you're only focused on the tennis stuff?
0: Like with, so like our arc was, we started in 2007 and we're putting content on YouTube, didn't make any money and struggling back then that YouTube, you would now you can make a living just posting videos on YouTube. But back then, you the CPMS were terrible. You make the dollar if that. So in two thousand nine, I found Jeff Walker, like he was doing a launch, but I couldn't afford the two grand to buy PLF. So I just started my own membership site in that time, and in ten months we might have done uh, seventy thousand bucks. So it was like seven thousand dollars a month, which was like it was good. Like we got it going. We're like there's something here, but. Me and my business partner, a guy named Adam Siminsky, we've been best friends since first grade. Seven grand a month between two people living in Washington, D.C. with D.C. prices is tough. And then in June of 2010, Jeff did another launch and we were able to get together the two grand to buy the thing. And then in the first week, like he hadn't even released the whole course. I got to like module one. I just reverse engineered what I figured the launch would be from his content. We did $35,000. I was like, holy shit. And then just kept doing launches, and then like literally a year later, we're working with the Bryan brothers doing a launch with them, who are the best men's doubles team of all time. A couple of years later, we're with Martina Navratilova, who transcends tennis. So we figured out PLF, and then I got connected with Ryan, who was the quiz model is more front end focused. At least it was for us. So we started doing the quiz stuff with Ryan and worked with him until he he decided to become Ryan Lebeck. And then when they come to you and they're like, hey, can you do a case study? I'm like, sure, why not? I'm happy to have it help out, buddy. I
1: remember when I went through his book, uh, I think you had the quiz funnel pretty prominently on your site, I think. Yeah. Why don't you use that anymore?
0: We, it's a matter of iterating and testing all sorts of stuff. And the thing that we found that worked best for us, just our business is just putting our playbook stuff up there and, uh, and just having people go direct to buy. Uh,
1: When you say works best, like how are you measuring that? For
0: us, for us, just in terms of ROI on ad spend.
1: Ultimately, that's the measuring stick is ROI on ad spend?
0: For us, it's the simplest metric. Yeah. The thing about, if you look at the playbook, thing it's painfully simple. It's a page, it's a sales page with a video sales letter that's 20 minutes long or something like that, and an order button at the bottom. So just in terms of the simplicity of it, when you run a business, it's I don't want to have to do all this stuff, write email sequences, follow-up campaigns, and all that stuff. It's just so much less work having just a sales page of buyers. So that's one of many reasons we we went that way. It's just, I got to write these jokes in the morning, Jacques. I don't have time to be working on funnels. <laughs> Yeah, split testing stuff, that sounds awful.
1: (laughs) That's one of the great things about this is when you can make it work, then you can spend your time however you want. But whether that's working on funnels inside your business or doing something completely different.
0: Yeah, I didn't get into business to work.
1: (laughs) One thing that happened to me is once I was like making money from piano, by teaching piano, the joy that I got out of just like playing piano faded a little bit because that became just like what I did for a living. Did that happen to you at all with tennis?
0: Dude, that's hilarious that you're bringing this up. So I am writing the fuzzy yellow ball story. And so one, like you, when you write the story and it's supposed to be comedic, you try and figure out ways to frame things that are like funny analogies, like thing one is like thing two, or compare and contrast. And by the way, these all work for, for marketing relies on analogies all the time, or when we pitch the playbook. So playbook and plays is not a term that's native to tennis. So what we say is if you look at other sports, teams run plays, football teams run plays to score touchdowns, basketball teams run plays to score baskets, soccer teams run plays to score goals. And when it comes to your doubles game, you can run a play to set up an easy put away volley and overhead. So that's an analogy, right? I'm comparing tennis to these other sports that people are familiar with. They're familiar that plays are run to, to get specific goals. So I can take Knowledge that people have of something else and apply it to tennis, and they're like, "Oh, I get it." So that was my point, like forty-five minutes ago, is that the techniques for comedy and marketing are the same. It's just the outcome, the quote-unquote punchline, is a little bit different. What was I talking about before? I lost my train of thought.
1: Yeah. So where I started, w- where we're going is, have you lost any oh, yeah. joy in actually like playing tennis from this being your main thing?
0: Yeah. There's it's the the way I'm working it for the comedy now. There's there's some angle about turning your hobby into your job. And then I got to find the thing to compare that to that will make it funny. But it is like you you have, I, I played in college and you get a lot of college guys that uh, it's not even their job. They just get burned out after four years of playing on a college team because it actually is like a job. You go to class and then you have practice in the afternoon and then you got to go to the gym and that's five, six days a week. That's not even counting matches. I never lost the joy of playing the sport. So I love to play. The competition angle is great. You're always out there kind of problem solving. So when you're playing somebody who's good. So I like that. And you can always get better. I was just down in Asheville. There's a guy named Lawson Duncan down there who has made it to 47 in the world. He made it to the fourth round of the French Open. He's like 55, 56 now. And he's lost like a step. The guy's still a beast. So going down and playing against him is so fun because It's obviously an incredible challenge and I'm not going to beat the guy, but, you know, just trying to figure out how to have a little bit of success and be like, oh, hitting these series of shots, running this play, not working. So I got to try this instead. And that has always been interesting and I I haven't lost the fun of playing, but just like anything, there's moments where you're like, I don't want, I want to think about something other than tennis. So one of the cool things we do now is I don't really come up with too much of the content we go to experts. And so we've got this analytics guy. We have another guy who work with who's an expert in biomechanics, how your body should be moving when you hit a forehand, backhand serve. So he's a PhD. I'm never going to be that level of expert. And then there's obviously like the Martina Navajalovas of the world. So it's fun to work with them because I don't know what they're going to say. And it's a fun challenge to package what they're saying into a playbook. Uh, so that's an interesting challenge, but I'm not responsible for saying here is the actual tennis content.
1: Very cool. No, good for you that you're still loving actually playing tennis. That was just, that, that's just my personal experience. And especially when I'm talking to people who are in hobby niches, I love to understand if they're like that too. So look, sure. thanks, thanks for being so generous with your time. Last question for you and take it whatever direction you want. But like I said, you're obviously passionate about like the business side and you, you've innovated with lots of things. So if somebody comes to you for just like advice and, and let's take an example where somebody's just starting out, like, where do you recommend they start? Should they focus on building an audience? Should they jump right into creating one of these nonlinear products? What are, what's your advice for people looking to do this type of stuff?
0: Yeah, obviously I'm biased, but I would probably do that first. I would create... Because at the end of the day, if you pick a topic, you only need to create like one play. Take one piano exercise, for example, just to use you. If you were getting started, starting your business over, you could take one piano exercise and you could post it on Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, whatever your social media is, just to your group of friends and be like, what do you think of this? Is this any good? Do you like this? And then use their feedback to iterate and get an idea if you are building something that people actually want to buy. That would probably be the way, the, one of the other problems I have with building a course is like, you spend a lot of effort building something nobody wants. Um, that is a legitimate concern if you've never done it before. One book I did read, if I read, I mean, I got through a third of it, which is good for me, was Ultra Learning. I can't even remember the bro's name, but this was maybe two years ago, but he had a wonderful concept in it where he's like, whatever you're trying to do, if you're trying to get really good at something, so let's just take, you're trying to get good at teaching somebody something on the internet and making it a saleable product. He said, one of the most important things you can do is increase your feedback loops. So if I write a joke and I have to wait a week to tell it to see if somebody laughs, that is a vastly inferior feedback loop than if I can write a joke, tell it to someone within the next 30 minutes and get feedback on it and iterate it from there. The advantage of creating like a playbook model where you're splitting your content out is you create just one play, you share it with some people and you get that feedback and then you iterate it from there and you actually have real world you stress test it basically. And that content, by the way, you can post, you can build a list by just posting that stuff for free. You post a couple wherever, and then you can say, Hey, come back to my website to check out more. Jock, if you have your top 25 favorite piano exercises of all time, exercises 25 through 100 that don't make the product are now content you can put on YouTube, right? You're like, you like this content, come back to my website, my best stuff's there. It's a simple way to create kind of a container for content that works both on if you're publishing, trying to build a list and as the core product itself.
1: Very cool. Okay. Lots to think about. Will, thanks so much. Where can I get information about the Will Hamilton comedy tour?
0: Oh, that is a good question. I have no social media. I have no nothing at all. I don't really have a good answer for that at the moment, but yeah, (laughs) I own willhamilton.com, but it's not live yet. So I need to set up a very basic squeeze page. So just keep checking back, willhamilton.com. One of these months, it'll be up.
1: Sounds good. Thanks, Will.
0: Thanks for listening, everybody.
1: (music) Before we wrap up, there are a few things that I'd like to address from that conversation that I found really interesting. One is that Will brought up influencer marketing and how effective that is for getting an ROI and selling his product. And I love how he said, when you're running paid ads, you're competing for ad space among really large corporations. Whereas when you do the influencer marketing, you have way more control and there's way less competition. And he made it sound pretty easy, to be honest with you. And so I'm sure some of you are going to take that away from this episode and try to do a little bit of influencer marketing. And if you do, hey, let me know, let me know how that goes for you. The other thing certainly is when we were talking about the the big concept of linear versus nonlinear products and you probably notice it took me a little while to really understand what will was talking about and i didn't really get it until he said it's a different product so you could probably tell i thought he was trying to say that you should never have an online course you should never have a linear product and no he was just saying that's a different product and that he could have linear products and non-linear products but because of the competition because of the differentiation that these nonlinear products, his playbooks allow him to have, he really focuses on that. So what he's suggesting is that me and other course creators out there should at least try this concept of the playbook, the nonlinear product, and it doesn't have to just replace your linear product, your online course, but you could add to it. Or if you're just starting out, maybe consider going down this route of the non-linear product, as long as it makes sense for your particular niche. Will and I have had lengthy discussions about this since going off air with this episode, because he's been trying to get me to create a playbook of sorts. And with the piano business, it's a little difficult because I could totally see a playbook with individual songs because the end result is being able to play that song. So you could have a playbook of songs, but with my niche, we run into music licensing issues. In the episode, he suggested the mistakes. So that could be a non-linear product I released for piano in 21 days, but maybe it makes more sense on this side of my business with the online course guy side of the business to have some sort of product like this. And that's still something I'm considering and maybe it's something you should consider too. That being said, this puts another episode of the online course show in the books. This has been episode 190. So you can find the show notes and links from today by going to OC. Dot show slash 190. And remember that free training I told you about at the beginning, if you want to go deeper with online courses, whether you're just starting out or you have an online course already, this free training will give you the confidence to move forward and work on the right things to move the needle in your business. It's called the online course business formula. You can find that by going to ocformula.com. The next episode of the podcast is a good one. Not that they're not all good. This has been a fantastic episode. But if I could tease the next episode for you, have another guest. And it is probably the number one guest I've always wanted to have on this podcast. I'll leave it at that. It's not somebody that everybody listening to this has heard of. But it's somebody I've looked up to for a very long time. Some of you will know who it is. And I've already had the conversation with them. We just haven't released the episode yet. It will be next. And I promise you, it does not disappoint. So how's that for a tease? So stay tuned for the next episode as well, because I promise you, it is a good one thank you so much for being out there. I know we have a lot of new listeners lately. I really appreciate each and every one of you. Thanks for being a listener. Thanks for supporting my work here. That's a wrap for this one. I'll see you in the next episode.